We're in Mark 13 um, today. Uh, it's nice to be home. I've been gone a couple weeks. I was down in Portland. And um, if, do you guys know the mantra for the city of Portland? Keep Portland weird. And I say, mission accomplished, guys. You nailed it. Nailed it. Uh, when I drop into Portland from Fairbanks, I feel like I'm on another planet there. Um, I did get to enjoy some uh, good eats and some eccentric coffee and one afternoon of sunshine, so that was all right. Um, but it is good to be home. Uh, what takes me there is Western Seminary, and I've been actually I've been going for 17 years now. First working on my master's and most recently my doctorate, and and leaving I was actually really emotional because. I didn't expect to be, but uh, that was my, those were my last two courses that I just completed. I still have that nagging bit of a dissertation to do, um, but, but my favorite part was done, the instruction. I love the instruction, and it, and it was kind of emotional um, for me to leave, but um, nevertheless, and I want to say thank you to you guys. Uh, whether you know it or not, you've been supporting me in doing that, so thank you for that. Um, when I'm on the road, when I'm traveling, one of the things I like to do is to take pictures uh, of sort of prominent churches in the region uh, that I'm in. Uh, so back in 2011, I got to take a picture of this little chapel. Uh, this is Westminster Abbey in the UK. Amy and I were there on sabbatical and we got to do a tour of that, which was really cool. This is another one I didn't expect to find. I was in San Antonio at a conference, um, theological conference. And this, they say this is the first site of worship in San Antonio, this cathedral. And I thought, I'm pretty sure people have been worshiping without a cathedral for a while. So, But nevertheless, this was beautiful. Um, and it was just kind of a fun thing to run into. Uh, this is another one I've seen a few times. This is Trinity Church in Boston. It's amazing how this old historic church is just nestled right in among skyscrapers there, reflecting off some of the windows. And here's one more. This is in Alaska. I have not seen this church. I want to visit this church. This is in Juneau. This is called the Shrine of St. Teresa. I don't know if any of you have seen this, but it's, look at that stone architecture. Isn't that beautiful? So I kind of hope to visit that someday. But. but like me, just coming home from Portland here, the disciples are on the road. Right? They, home is Galilee, but they've traveled the 85 miles. They are in Jerusalem. I don't know if Jerusalem has a mantra or had a mantra. What would it be? Keep Jerusalem holy, something like that, right? But that's where they are. And like me, they are, uh, have this fascination, particularly with the temple. And they are there just basking in the glow of its magnificence. It's really just kind of this very relatable human moment here. I think it's important for us before we kind of get into this passage to understand the significance of the temple for Israel, for their faith, for their worship, and just what all it meant to them so we understand what happens here in this passage. Remember that this is the destination of their triannual pilgrimages, right? They would celebrate Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, Pentecost. Three times a year, they would be coming and worshiping year after year after year. This was the site of God's presence on earth for them. Uh, this was the location where they would bring sacrifices to atone for sin. It's the place from which they would leave feeling cleansed and forgiven, at least for a little while, right? Until Billy acted up on the way home and then, you know, someone lost their temper and, you know, got to go back to temple again. 
The temple here actually occupies one-sixth of the land area of the old, old Jerusalem, old town Jerusalem. One-sixth. That's how prominent it was just in its size. And so you just need to understand that, the, and I'm not, I'm not even scratching the surface of its significance for Israel, but they loved the temple. It was beautiful to them in many ways in terms of their memory, the practice of their faith, and just the aesthetic of it. It was, a, it was a site of pride. It was a place of comfort and security. And so when I imagine, uh, as I kind of put myself in the seat of the disciples here, I think about this moment. They're not just basking in the past glory of the temple or even its beauty in this particular moment. But part of what's hitting them is sort of this future glory consistent with the fact that Jesus, God's Messiah, has been revealed, is with them, entered triumphantly into the city. This is a big moment of expectation. They are expecting the inauguration of Messiah, his rule, his reign on earth, Israel independent of Roman occupation and influence. Uh, this was even the site where some of them had imagined their seats of honor, right? Third floor, corner office, window, south facing over the Kidron Valley. Yeah, right there. This is, this is what they're feeling here. And I want you to have that as we read these words. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And then Jesus turns their world upside down. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Insert long, awkward pause. Lots of blinking. Pondering questioning, wondering, but not yet with the courage to ask. We're actually told that they make the three, three quarters of a mile walk across the Kidron Valley over to the Mount of Olives before Mark indicates that anybody spoke. And finally, they ask their questions. But I would submit to you that that walk, while it was relatively short, felt very long and was filled with heartache. Because the disciples, after all, they have a category for the devastation of the temple. This has happened before, right? Because this is the second temple. Solomon's temple was destroyed. They were carried off into Babylonian exile, right? They were there for 70 years until they returned and then rebuilt it. This is the rebuilt temple, the reconstructed temple. So when Jesus makes this announcement, they have a category for this in their mind. They understand the devastation that it brings, it taps into a past wound and it wrecks their present and future hopes. That's the weight of what Jesus has just said. And so basically, and if you've looked at your notes, you can see our first point here. And I'm borrowing a line from REM, right? If you know REM, Jesus announces the end of the world as the disciples knew it. You're going to be humming that all day, aren't you? You're welcome. Little earworm for you. Um, what we're going to see, though, is that in their minds, they sort of link together this destruction of the temple with the end of the world. 
That's why they ask the questions that they do. Verse three, Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Now, one of the great blessings we have in our scriptures is that we have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call the synoptics. They kind of write from the same perspective or same view, synoptics. And uh, it's helpful in this case actually to go over to Matthew because he gives us a little bit more of the dialogue. Uh, And I think it kind of helps us understand how Jesus answers their questions because in fact, they ask three. So in Matthew's gospel, uh, Matthew 24, verse three, same, same message, all of it discourse. It says this, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So do you see that? The three questions that, that they lay out there. So that's what we have. When will this happen? When will the temple be destroyed? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be a sign of the end of the age? And so what we need to sort of understand what's important here is that the disciples have lumped all of these things together as though the one event initiates all of the others suddenly. And as we're gonna find out, that's not the case as Jesus explains it, or as we can look at history and see, that's not the case. Uh, In fact, uh, there are three things that Jesus addresses. First of all, the near event, which is the destruction of the temple, which happened in AD 70. And then what we would call the far event, the return or the coming of of the son of man in glory, the second coming of Christ. And sort of the third issue here is Uh, not just the second coming, but the signs that relate to it and of the end of the age. Now, I wanna pause right there and just suggest to you, uh, this is something we can actually relate to because we live in some pretty interesting times right now, don't we? And there are times when we see events, we hear the news, we're reading the news or we hear about something and we think, boy, sometimes it feels like we're flirting with the apocalypse here right? You ever feel that or wonder about that? Um, I'll just kind of list off some of the things that I'm sure come to your mind. In the past few years, a pandemic, been pretty disruptive. Uh, Let's say disconcerting mandates. Can I get away with that for everybody? Everybody happy with that? No is the answer, but whatever. (laughs) Now we're hearing about food and supply shortages. Interesting. And then every now and then North Korea pops off another missile. I'm getting tired of that personally. Add to that Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, which no kidding threatens World War III. A phrase I've heard uttered my whole life, but just kind of out there and now like, well, really maybe. And then much smaller things, but still there, spike in fuel prices on top of a struggling economy, inflation through the roof. And just overall, many things that we have come to feel really comfortable in and confident in suddenly feel exposed and thin and a little more fragile, right? And if you're in healthcare, if you're in counseling, if you're a pastor, if you're just a friendly person, you know the people around you are struggling. You know anxiety is through the roof right now. People are feeling it and they're reporting on it and it is just what is happening in our world. 
And I think to some degree, our generation, along with every generation that has come before us, I think contemplates the same question that the disciples are wrestling with here. Is this the end of the world? Is this the end of the, of the world? Are we on the, I asked that first service and the little girl said, yes. <laughs> are we on the cusp of the apocalypse? Is that what's happening right now? <laughs> well, I'm gonna give you an answer and it might surprise you. No, I don't believe we are. And I'm going to try to show that to you here. In fact, I think what we find in this passage is that life is going on right now just as Jesus said that it would. I don't think we're seeing signs of the end or of the second coming at this present moment. I think what we're seeing are what I'll call false signs. And I think Jesus laid that out for us. So as, as he gets these questions from the disciples, anticipating, well, if the temple's going down, the world as we know it is over, tell us how this is gonna happen. Jesus gives an answer in the Olivet Discourse that I think is very much misunderstood and I'm glad to be able to preach on it this morning to hopefully bring some clarity because overall, I think it is a message of great encouragement. I think Jesus gives Christians a practical guide for living in this wide swath of time between AD 70 when the temple went down and when he returns. And that's what this is about. It helps us from becoming one of two things or help us, helps us to keep from becoming one of two things. Either one chicken little who runs around, this guy is falling, this guy is falling. On the other hand, it helps us avoid becoming cloistered cliff, right? Who is too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. It prevents us from these extremes. And rather, I think what Jesus does, he equips his disciples and us with the tools necessary to live well in this world, even though it's broken, so that we would be engaged in it, but not ignorant of things, so that we would live confidently and not fearful, so that we would be on guard against deception and rightly informed about the real struggles that are there that we would be reminded that we're empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. God, the Holy Spirit, indwells us. And that he would keep us continually on mission for Christ as his ambassadors. So first of all, when Jesus gets the question, I think he is actually dismissive about many of the alarming events that typically get people all worked up. So Jesus seems to prepare us for what I'll call deniable signs or false signs. Verse five, Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. Now, here's what I, I want you to hear this, Christian. Too many people, I think, have read this passage and understood Jesus to be saying, when you see these kinds of events, that is a catalyst which ushers in the end. And I think Jesus is saying the complete opposite. I think he's saying, when you see these kinds of things, don't get worked up. That's just the swath of human history. The end is still to come down the line. 
And so he seems to be, again, preparing us for this massive amount of time between the fall of the temple and the return of Christ. So this, this first section here, I think, is really just to prepare the church for that season, to equip them so that they are not diverted from their true calling. And I think Jesus gives us basically four cautions here that I want to uh, sort of draw out. The first is this, be ready for deception. Imposters are going to come along. They're going to come along. And we actually see a real outworking of this just 20 years after Jesus says this. He's sitting here, let's say AD 33, he's giving this message. 20 years later, the apostle Paul will deal with this in the church of Thessalonica. Some false teachers came along and they were telling people in the church, you guys missed it. You missed the day of the Lord. He came and went, you're stuck here. And they got worked up about it. And so in 2 Thessalonians, Paul is addressing this. And overall, his message to them is this. Well, number one, you didn't miss it. And number two, you couldn't miss it. When Christ returns, it will be undeniable, a non-missable event. Know that, Christian. And if you have that secure, then you don't have to worry about that little huckster in the hotel lobby claiming to be the Messiah. Come to my seminar. Or the person out in the Goldstream Valley setting up a compound with some munitions and supplies, not the Messiah. You're not going to hear uh, some little report or some tweet that, oh yeah, I think maybe the Messiah came. When Jesus returns, when the second coming of Christ comes, the whole world will know it. Unmissable event, undeniable. So be ready for deception. Secondly, be ready for distraction. I can't tell you how often I've heard well-meaning Christians sort of get worked up specifically along this idea of, well, there are wars and rumors of wars, and you know what that means, the end is coming. Once again, what is Jesus actually saying? He's saying, no, these things will happen, but the end is still to come. It's down the line. He's saying these things will just be part of human history. Uh, or to keep up with his analogy, he talks about labor. I'll put it this way. These are the Braxton Hicks uh, labor pains, not the real labor pains. First time mom goes to the hospital two, three, maybe four times before she really delivers, right? And that's what some Christians are doing. But these are just the fake out pains. They're not the impending labor. And so this idea of be ready for these distractions, I think... If I could paraphrase Jesus, I'll say it this way. It's not nearly as nice. Just don't be stupid, Christian. Okay. So you leave here today and you talk to someone. What did you guys talk about? What was the sermon today? Pastor said, don't be stupid. That'll preach. Verse nine, you must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children, children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Well, that's encouraging, isn't it, right? 
Jesus doesn't want us to be faked out by deceivers. He doesn't want us to get distracted by alarming world events. So what would he have us do here? He also wants us to be ready for persecution. It will happen. You will be persecuted for your faith. You will. That is a part of the Christian life as the New Testament explains it. But I also want to say something else here, and and this might make you mad, and that's okay. That's my prerogative, I guess. Be careful, Christian, what you call persecution. Okay? There are plenty of bad policies, decisions that aren't uh, in support or in favor of Christianity, but that doesn't mean they're aiming at and persecuting us for our faith. It will happen but let's be careful what we call persecution because we don't want to run around like a whining church, you know, crying wolf all the time, right? We can be more resilient than that. Be careful what you call persecution. But Jesus prepares us, it will happen. And then fourthly here, he says, be ready for personal rejection. Some of these difficulties that come are right in among the family, right? And I think it's good to know this because I think quite frankly, some people have this mindset of, well, I'm a Christian now. Life's just gonna lay down for me. Everything's gonna just go smooth and happy. After all, I got some Jesus, you know? My kids will rise up and call me blessed. My neighbor will think well of me and do all the things that I hope they'll do. Life is gonna be grand. I got some Jesus. And Jesus basically says, False. That's not the way it is. In fact, this might be kind of hard to hear, but just to be honest, becoming a Christian is a prelude to an awful lot of earthly disappointment. It just is. And the reason why is because we enter into this worldview, we know that we're saved and we see the world as God made it and intended it and is going to remake it. And that's our hope and the place from which we live. Meanwhile, the world which does not love God is hostile to God and the things of God is running amok. And this tension grows in us as we grow closer to the Lord and further from the world. Becoming a Christian is a prelude to a lot of disappointment. So what are we to understand about normal Christian life? Well, it includes deceivers, wars, famines, earthquakes, injustice, arrests, government intrusion, betrayal, rebellious kids, awful parents, and general hatred. That's what Jesus lays out for us here. Uh, And as you can see, as we look over human history, that's just the way it is. That's the way it's always been. When I was leaving uh, Western, uh, they we're preparing us for this dissertation, this massive, ominous thing that I have to think about now. That's how you can be praying for me. That's one of the ways you can be praying for me. Um, And they kind of scare you about it. They make you take these three one-unit classes. I had to read seven books on research methodology. Can you imagine anything drier than that? They're telling us it's gotta be 200 pages long, 150 references. I've got to develop a research project. Some of you might be in it. I uh, have to recruit a first reader who has a PhD in the field. Uh, And they talk about the difficulty of finding time to write this thing. They even brought in a a student, former student, who completed hers. She's incredibly bright and she almost didn't complete it. In fact, they have a category. They tell you right at the beginning, more people don't complete it than do. 
and they have a category for you. It's called A, B, D. You know what that stands for? All but dissertation. So that you get to your last class, you're like, I'm ready to go. And they lay all this on you and you think, ah, I'm not sure if I wanted to hear all that. Actually, it's good because it kind of helps you prepare and say, well, I'm gonna have to roll up my sleeves and work hard and be ready for what's about to come. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing for disciples here. It's gonna be hard. Let me prepare you for that. And so he gives us these things that are sort of the deniable signs or the non-signs, false signs. But then he moves on and gives us some clarity and says, you wanna know what the real signs are? The undeniable signs, the true signs of the end of the age and the return of Christ? Here they are, verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. So what are the undeniable signs? The first one is this, this abomination of desolation. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Abomination of desolation. There's a lot here and I'm gonna try to do this very quickly. I'm giving you the primary passages so you can kind of search this out on your own too. But this first appears in the scriptures in Daniel chapters 9, 11, and 12. And we actually find sort of there was a partial or initial fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy in 167 BC, where Antiochus Epiphanes went into the temple and set up an altar uh, to Zeus and sacrificed a pig there. It was the initial fulfillment of this abomination of desolation of standing in a place where one ought not to have been and doing what they ought not to have done. But then, 200 years after that event, Jesus communicates that there will be a secondary fulfillment or another event of the same kind yet to come. As we move on in the New Testament, we see in 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 13, that there is a future abomination of desolation coming, which will involve the Antichrist. Paul calls this one, the man of lawlessness. And essentially, this person will establish a covenant with Israel and then enter into the temple and make a sacrifice uh, there that they ought not to make and declare themselves to be God and demand worship of themselves. And so by all appearances, what needs to happen for this to take place? You got it? 
a temple needs to be rebuilt. And sacrifices would need to be reinstituted. And this man of lawlessness has to be revealed. So this future of abomination of desolation, this is kind of given to us as sort of the clear definitive sign of the end. And Jesus is saying in the meantime, don't get sucked in by all these other world affairs and dramas. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, disease, these things. Those aren't the signs. This is the sign. When you see this, it's go time. And then there's sort of a, 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 second, um, a second picture here uh, that is supposed to be super clear. And we would call it these celestial signs in the sky. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The heavenly bodies uh, will be shaken. Once again, when the end has come and the Lord is returning, you're not gonna miss this. The very skies are gonna tell you. This will be undeniable. So this will be the end of the world as we know it. But as R.A.M. said, we feel fine. We feel fine. Why is that? We who have taken refuge in Christ know that what is being ushered in is peace and shalom and goodness and the world made right and set right where we are with the Lord and all things are as they ought to be. And I say this too because I want to be careful not to be smug about that because for some of you, you're sitting here thinking, well, yeah, I feel fine, but you know somebody who isn't. And we should be rightfully hurt there. And we should recognize that God has given us a season of time on earth to do something about that. And he's given us the gospel message that we can proclaim to rescue people from that condition so that they would look at the end of the world and say, I too feel fine. Verse 26, at that time, people will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Again, I don't want to be smug about this idea of we feel fine, but we're blessed to know God's story. We're blessed to know the end, right? We win, or Jesus wins, and we're with him. And so we see these two great things here. First of all, Christ gathers those who have taken refuge in him. And then secondly, this seems to sort of immediately usher in the return of Christ, there's a lot of discussion around this particular phrase here that says this generation. Uh, a lot of people are sort of troubled by that because it sounds like Jesus is saying to those that are listening to him, this generation here who hear me will certainly see all these things. But in fact, I think what he is saying is this generation refers to those who see these clear signs, the abomination of desolation and these celestial signs. That generation will certainly not pass away. Once they see those things, the, imminent, uh, the Christ's return is imminent. 
So let me be honest with you, and this might surprise you about what I'm about to say here. I, I don't expect to see this in my lifetime. Just, just to be honest, I could be wrong and I, I hope I'm wrong because it'd be better if it was sooner. But I, I, don't, I just don't expect to see it. I just turned 46 just this last week, a couple days ago. And I was telling Amy, I said, hey, Amy, I don't feel 47 at all. And she says, that's because you're not, you're turning 46. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that, ex- that explains it, right? <laughs> so I'm 46. Let's say God gives me 80 years. That's 34 more years. How long will it take for the temple to be rebuilt? How long will it take for sacrifices to be reinstituted in Jerusalem? How long will it take for the man of lawlessness to be revealed? I suspect decades. Again, I could be wrong, uh, but I don't expect to see this in my lifetime. I think many of the events that are going on right now um, they'll all set up the end, but I don't think they're the definitive signs. And so that kind of leads us to this last question of, well, what are we supposed to do then? And I think Jesus, almost sensing that if this is future and down the line, what are some possible risks? And I think the comfort that he gives here, if we're not careful, could lead to complacency. And I think this last section is to confront us about that. So he says, verse 32. But about that day or hour, no one knows. If I could underline something in your Bible, it would be that. No one knows. There's somebody in your life who likes to pick dates and predict and all of this. And they tell you, oh, March 10th, it's going to happen. You know, go to the beach that day because you know it's not going to happen that day, right? They've just ruled it out. Nobody knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts a servant in charge, each with their assigned task. And he tells the one at the door, keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows at dawn. If he, if he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. I think in this, this passage, we're basically given three things that we are to do in light of what Jesus is teaching here. Number one, to persevere. He's given us that in verse 13. But the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. Persevere. It's supposed to get worse before it gets better. Know that, be ready for that, persevere. And then secondly, be on guard. Uh, And I I will paraphrase this not as nicely as Jesus did. Uh, I think this is the point of basically saying, don't be stupid. Don't be stupid, Christian. Don't be fooled. Don't, Don't listen to these false prophets and false teachers and false messiahs. You know all of the false signs now. Pay attention to the true signs. Stay alert. Be on guard. Stay away from doomsday heralds. Don't be taken in by false false teachers. And then thirdly, watch. 
this is maybe the harder of the three to kind of unpack. What does it mean to watch? What does it mean to stand at the door and watch? How are we to, how are we to do that? And overall, I think what Jesus is saying, don't get lazy, don't get lethargic, don't live in anxiety, but maintain a love and devotion to God. Again, if we go over to Matthew and we kind of pull in some of the, uh, the dialogue there, we get a few more details that kind of helps us see this. So this is Matthew 24, verse 34. He says, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap for it will come on all those who live on the face of the earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the son of man. So watching doesn't mean well, that's it. I got to stock up on MREs and 22 ammunition and I'm going to hunker down in a compound of my own making and I'm going to survive the apocalypse. That's just knucklehead thinking. And it really annoys me because I like to shoot 22 ammunition and you all drive up the prices to do that. <laughs> Stop. Don't be stupid. But overall, I think what this watching means is that we are simply to persevere in our discipleship with the Lord. We know the end. We don't have to live in fear of it. We don't have to be anxious about life. And we don't have to be lethargic and just give in to carousing and drunkenness either because God has work for us to do. A couple years ago, and by that I mean a decade ago, actually, a decade ago, uh, Amy and I were sitting down with some friends on a, having a kind of a picnic or a, a lunch out or a barbecue out on the, on the deck and there were six of us there, and one of the other couples that we were talking to, they're also in ministry. And the woman was just, we were all kind of lamenting about the difficulty of life and things that we were seeing, and it was kind of a rant. And, and finally, the woman across from us, she just says, why doesn't he just end it? <laughs> and we just laughed about that. And, and every now and then when we have a tough week or a tough time, we look at each other and go, why doesn't he just end it? You know why? Because we have gospel work to do. That's why. Because the story is written. The story is over. The only thing that's left to deal with is how many people will we bring across the line of faith with the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's what we have left to do before he ends it. Would you pray with me? Father, it's not easy to look at uh, some of the difficulties that Jesus lays out here. And he says, well, just be a part of life. And yet we already know this. We know it. We see it on the news every night. So Lord, help us not to be misled by these false signs of the end. Lord, instead, may we live well as your children, as disciples of Jesus, as those who have hope anchored in something real. God, may we as Christians, may we as a church show an altogether different witness in this world. May people see us and say they have something that holds them up, a belief of faith and a person. May they see that in us, and Lord, may we have answers for the questions they will give to us for this hope that we have. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we know your story. We pray in Christ's name, amen.